outline. I actually made 20 extra copies. Suzanne, I'd like everybody to have one of these. So if you don't have one, put up your hand and Suzanne will get it over to you. So you can fill that out. Right. Even down in the front here, Suzanne, there are a few. Keep your hand up. Because we've been preaching through John chapter 6, 5 and 6, and we come today to verses 36 through 40, and I've divided it up among the three points. Verse 36 under point 1, verses 37 and 38 under point 2, verse 39 and 40 under point 3. Listen to the Word of God. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Now down to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now turn it over. The top of point three. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I want to show you a testimony of uh, one of our friends from here uh, that was put together by Chosen People Ministries, Mitch Glazer, who's actually going to going to be preaching here next year. And uh, this testimony, Wes and Kathy, if you would run it and then turn down the, the lights. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I'm Jewish. My parents are Jewish. Everyone I know in the family, ancestors are Jewish. And uh, matter of fact, we were four pretty argumentative little kids. And my, my mother used to say, you can't even get a word in edgewise around here. And what was funny is that we all grew up to be lawyers. And um, when that happened, at one point, I remember she said, well, at least I'm vindicated that I couldn't get a word in edgewise with you guys. So, But I remember with my grandmother in particular, uh, this, you know, she grew up in the old, the old country and anti-Semitism was just such a visceral part of the upbringing that she said, now you're going to school and it's uh, Christmas time of year and they're going to do those Christmas songs. Now don't make a big deal about it, but you can't say his name. So I went in this bookstore. I was visiting my brother at the time and uh, checking out the New York Times bestsellers. And there's this book, Rabbi Jesus, uh, by Bruce Chilton. And I, I was attracted to the title because Rabbi Jesus would not be a very common uh, title for a book, at least in my world. So I picked it up, and uh, my brother came over. He says, why would you read that book? And I said, you know, Alan, come on. You know, I'm an educated woman. I don't even know who this person is. And he changed history, if nothing else, you know. So I, I'm just curious. I just want to read the book. I just want to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. And so bought the book, got on the plane, and headed back to Columbus. I sat down on the plane, and um, I'm sitting in there reading my book, uh, Rabbi Jesus, and this woman kind of peers over my shoulder and says, oh, what are you reading? And I said, kind of defensively, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm, I'm just curious who, you know, who Jesus is. And she said, well, uh, what do you want to know? You know, I've written books about him. And I was pretty shocked. And she started talking to me about some of the books and some of the information about him. And at the end of all this, I said, you know, I'm not going to change my religion, but, you know, if I were to read the New Testament, you know, do you have one that you'd recommend? And so she recommended one to me. And then she said, and you know what, I'm going to send you my books. Uh, give me your address. Let me send you my books. During this time, uh, shockingly, 
my marriage of 28 years um, came to an end. Uh, and it had happened, it had been building over a long time. Uh, to me, raising my children is like the most important thing that you can do in life. I had this dream about, I think it was a, a Zephaniah passage. He will delight with you in song. Like it was, um, I just woke up one morning going, Where, what is that? Where did that come from? I was by myself. This was in the spring of that year and um, came home from work one day and took the mail in and there was this yellow package. So I opened it up and um, there was a book in it. And the book had a card and I, I actually have a card that came with the book and it said, Dear Diane, I haven't forgotten my promise to send you this book. It just has been slow in getting to you. This book is part of my life story. In the midst of great pain, Jesus walked alongside me. I have been praying that whatever you go through in your life, that he will find you and comfort you as he blessed me. Blessings and shalom, Lori Hall. Then she would, Zephaniah 317, he will delight in you with song. And I'm just like, I'm just in shock. I'm in shock at so many levels that this card and this book arrived at this time. So I called my sister, who was living out in uh, Massachusetts at the time. I said, Wendy, you are not going to believe this. And I, and I told her how this person that I didn't know sat down next to me like six months ago on the, on the plane. We're driving back and forth from Boston to Columbus. And, and, uh, and I never had spoken to her about my personal life, never said a word. I only asked her about Jesus. And um, so I'm telling Wendy, who this woman is and I in this card in the book and there's like dead silence on the phone just nothing at Wendy and she goes did you say Lori Hall and I said yes and she said I'm holding a magazine in my hand and it's Christian-led woman and they're doing a review of Lori Hall's book and it's this very book that she sent to me at this moment it, to me it was so uh, profound the God was absolutely in my life. Late August of 2001, um, my sister and I were, were together and um, she invited me to church because a friend of hers was going to become a pastor. So we were going to support, I was supporting my sister, my sister was supporting her friend. So we go to a church service and uh, I was shockingly surprised at how beautiful and moving it was. And um, I have to say at the moment though, I felt that uh, I love the music. You know, this is like amazing music. And so I really, really, I got goosebumps and was really into the service, which was surprising. You know, I was a Jewish woman. I've really not attended church before. This was good. At the end of the service, she said, I want you to meet the pastors here. And they were both Jewish. And so I talked to these two guys. They grew up in New York. And I'm just like, how? How, how do you grow up Jewish and you're a pastor in a church? It just blew my mind. There I'm standing there, so this woman came over to me and she said, may I pray for you? She takes my hands like this, she said, may I pray for you? And um, I said, I just want to understand more about Jesus, <laughs> which I, that's all I wanted. But God, God just, he just zapped me. I feel like if there's such a thing as good electricity, it was like my body was just filled with love and, and warmth and, and electricity. It was like an electric electrical love hug of proportions I can't even imagine and I just felt this huge sense of truth of who Jesus is I felt it I could feel it and and the person that was praying for me said the Holy Spirit is on you and as a Jewish woman I have to admit I had no idea what she meant by that and she said will you accept Jesus as your Messiah after this happened um, I'm an upstanding member of the Jewish community uh, on the board at my synagogue 
and had a lot of interaction with the rabbis and um, the, the, my community. And uh, the subject came up, you know, I believe in Yeshua now. And the reaction was, what happened to you? How could you do this? I was like a traitor. You know, like, what? what? How, how could you possibly, all these years, believe that, you know, after being a Jewish woman and a leader in our community, how could you believe it? Jesus is the Messiah. And um, the beauty of how this happened to me is that I was so hit with the truth of it at such a deep level that all I could answer was, with great conviction, I can't explain why, but it is true. I know it is true. I know it is true in my heart. And I have the rest of my life to read Scripture and understand the why, but I know it is. It is the truth. Sweet, sweet symphony. I love this video because it captures for us, it illustrates for us the marvelous way that God calls a person effectually to Himself. Now, for most of us, it's not quite so dramatic, you know, and we don't all have the gift of, of a converse, public conversation like she obviously has as a good attorney, but it captures what Jesus is talking about in our text today. Did you catch? She starts off and she says to her new friend, I'm Jewish. I'm not going to change my religion. Her brother says, come on, what are you doing reading that book? Her grandmother warned her, don't even say his name. But God draws her and God orchestrates circumstances in her life that are unmistakable. And Jesus Christ warms her heart with like an electric hug, she calls it. But it's a hug of truth. It's, it's what happens. Like John Wesley talked about, my heart was strangely warmed as he was reading Luther's preface to the Galatians, you see. And some, this is what happens when we suddenly, we don't even know when we cross the state line. We're driving along you know, and I was used to be in that state when I didn't believe, and now I'm in this state, and, and I do believe. I know it's true. In our passage, Jesus has begun to speak words that people find difficult. And throughout this series, what have we seen? Jesus makes people mad, but He also makes people glad. And my prayer for you today is His words here make your heart glad in His call to you and in your life. James Boyce, the great preacher from Philadelphia, he wrote six sermons on this passage. I'm just giving you one on this passage, but I read them all. Very helpful. And he says that in this passage, Jesus makes statements that take us deep into the heart and mind of God. So, I hope you'll follow with me. Three points from the text. Point number one, some people see and do not believe. Point number two, how is it that any people, any believe? And point number three, look on the Son and believe in Him. Let's pick up with what Jesus says in verse 36. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
We discover that people's hearts are hardened toward Jesus. And this is not simply a description of the situation. This is an explanation and presentation of the human condition. People can see Jesus and see clearly the glory of God and still not believe. And I know that he's not just describing the situation because a few verses later, down in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And even though people have seen the the beautiful miracles of Jesus, and they have heard His powerful teaching, and they have witnessed His love, nonetheless, He knows their hearts, and He knows they don't believe and they don't want any part of Him. What we are learning here is the tragic condition of people apart from God's grace. That's what we're, that's, we are learning what the Bible calls the doctrine of man. We are learning about the brokenness, corruption, or what is technically called the total depravity of the human. It's an important term. Total depravity does not mean you're as, uh, that people are utterly depraved. You're not as bad as you could be. Mothers still love their children, you know, but, and yet there is still selfishness and pride that corrupts even our best actions. And so the Bible describes us in very unflattering terms in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. Look at this with me. This is one of, you know, you say the Bible's to give us good news. This is one of the bad news passages, okay? Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And this one simple sentence teaches us three crucial things, and and, and it speaks to us about the, uh, the human condition apart from God's grace. Our moral life is corrupted. Our intellect is dark and does not understand. Our will is warped and wants to go its own way. Listen, some of you have friends that you've been witnessing to for a long time, and and you have shared the gospel, you've demonstrated Christ's love so clearly to them, you've invited them here many times, and they just have no interest. And you say to yourself, you scratch your head, you say, what's going on? Well, this is what's going on. There is no one righteous. Sin has corrupted every soul. Even our best deeds, our best deeds, Isaiah says, are like rags, dirty rags. But it's more than just a moral problem. It's an intellectual problem. He says no one understands because sin actually affects the mind. The theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. That's a fancy word, N-O-E-T-I-C. It, it, it means the mind is darkened by sin. And Paul teaches this in, here's another bad news text in Ephesians 4. Look at that with me, 4, 17 and 18. This one gets bad and it gets worse and then worse and worse. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then it gets worse. They are darkened in their understanding, 
It gets worse. Alienated from the life of God. It gets worse because of the ignorance that is in them. It gets worse due to the hardness of their heart. The mind is futile. It is darkened apart from God's grace. And then it's a problem of the will. The will is bent away from God. No one seeks for God. And we see this, especially here in New York. Why would anyone need God in the midst of such affluence, with such potential, with such comfort? Why would anyone need God? And the fact of the matter is, on Long Island, let's just say Nassau and Suffolk counties. 1.3 million in Nassau, 1.7 million in Suffolk County, 3 million people. Less than 1%, that would be 30,000 people, less than 1% are in this morning a Bible-believing, life-giving, Christ-centered evangelical church. Maybe significantly less. And I study Long Island. I know the demographics. I know the census data. Less than 1%. Why do you care? Now, I know some people resist this as negativity. You know, be the preacher that just preaches the positive. But friends, to get the good news, you have to hear the bad news. And the, the question is, well, can't anyone come to Jesus? The answer is, of course anyone can come to Jesus. The real deeper question is, who will come? And the answer is, no one. That's what this says. No one unless, unless what? Unless the Father draws him. This leads us into point two. How is it that any believe, even the less than one percent, the truly trust in Christ alone? Jesus speaks very clearly in verses 37 and then again in verse 44. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, let's just take the first part of that phrase, the Father gives. He locates the election, the selection of those given to Jesus in the mind and the heart of God the Father. It's it's right there in the text. The Father elects those. He chooses those He's going to give to the Son. Now, when non-Christians hear this, they, they don't like to hear it at all, but there are even Christians who are very reluctant to hear about and believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation. But here it is in the text, and in many texts, and I'm just going to share a few of them with you. They're printed in your outline, and your job is to pray and say, Lord, teach me. Give me a teachable humble, submissive heart as we review these texts. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, underline being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. It's all found. It's all anchored in His mercy and love for us. Do you get that? It's God's love and mercy is the reason that He's given you to Jesus. Somebody says, yes, but I did believe. Isn't it my faith that saved me? Well, just three verses later in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith was a gift from God. And so that fits with verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And it's very interesting, as the phrase goes on, he says, all that the Father gives me. And so if you're a Christian, it means that God the Father has given you to Jesus. You are a gift that has been delivered to Jesus. You know, down in his high priestly prayer, at the end of his life, before he goes to the cross, he has this amazing time of communion with the heavenly Father, and we eavesdrop on that prayer in John 17. And Jesus talks about the authority that God the Father gave him as God the Son. And he says in John 17, 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. All right? And in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. Who is he praying for? The ones who are given to him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's very particular. He actually limits the scope of his mediatorial work at that point. He says, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm just praying for them that you have given to me. And boy, do I love them. And it reveals for us something even deeper, this mystery behind the word predestination. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Look at this text even as He chose us. Okay, follow with me. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Here it comes. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Wow. And this is the way it was, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, when God sees Israel, and there she is in slavery, right? And we read, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. And that's twice, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, uh, Deuteronomy 14, 2. I put it in your and the reflection inside your bulletin so you could take that home with you. And God actually says in those passages, it's not because you were better than any other person or more attractive or more spiritual. He just says, I loved you because I loved you. Wow. What does it take for a spiritually dead person to hear the effectual call of Jesus Christ? and to come to Him. Two words in the Gospel of John are used to describe this. They are the words resurrection and rebirth. 
If you read through the Gospel of John, you come to understand your experience. If you're a, if you're a disciple of Jesus, your experience is resurrection and rebirth. When we think of resurrection in the Gospel of John, what do we think of? book of Lazarus, the story of Lazarus. Does anybody know the story of Lazarus in chapter 11? Maybe some of you are not familiar with that story where the friend of Jesus and brother of Mary and Martha dies, and Mary and Martha are brokenhearted, and they are weeping, and Jesus comes to them four days later, and He weeps that Lazarus is dead. But then He says that the glory of God may be displayed. What does He do? Does anyone know? He comes to the tomb and he says the words, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus is resurrected. He is raised from the dead and he walks out of the tomb and Jesus says, unwrap him and give him something to eat. And this, my friends, is a parable. It's a picture. It's a historical event that becomes a picture for us of what happens when we are drawn by the Father to Jesus Christ. We hear and we come out of the grave, the spiritual grave. Has that happened to you? Could you see as we were watching that powerful testimony, could you see how that was happening to the woman who was giving her test as he told her story? She was hearing his voice saying, come forth. In other places, Jesus describes it as rebirth. Little Marvin Melendez was born this week. What a wonder it is when a child is born into this world. It's a miracle. But so it's a miracle when, when a human being is reborn according to Jesus. What's the order? God chooses and regenerates, makes them born again, and then the individual believes and comes to Jesus. Does the baby decide to be born? Does the baby decide to be born? I choose to be born. Did little Marvin decide when and where he was going to be born? The circumstances of his birth? That's preposterous. Of course not. Did our friend in the video testimony, did she decide that she was going to sit next to a Christian author on the airplane? Did she decide that her marriage was going to fall apart and that someone was going to send her a word of encouragement with Zephaniah 3.17 on the very day she dreamed that verse? Did she decide to dream Zephaniah 3.17? God drew her and gave her, and He gives to you that spiritual love hug it causes you to know it's true because it is true. You're born again. You know, in John 1.13, Jesus talks about three ways you're not born. It's an interesting verse. If you look at it, Jesus describes children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Three ways you're not born again, not of blood. What is that? It doesn't happen by physical birth, not of the will of the flesh, not by emotion. And hey, 
we preachers, we can work people up to emotion and to tears, and we can persuade them and manipulate them, manipulate them to make a decision. But you know what? That's just fleshly impulse. And a month later, thanks but no thanks. And we've all seen that happen. Or the will of man. Your husband can't make you born again. You can't even will it yourself. Only if you are born of God, it says at the end of that phrase. And when Jesus talks to Nicodemus down in chapter 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and literally it's born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is this all about? 1 Peter 1 verse 23 describes it in the most graphic language. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. What is this seed he's talking about here? James Boyce says that Peter probably had in his mind the male seed. He's talking about sperm. He's talking about that life-giving seed that engenders life. That's Boyce says this. He takes you back to your high school health class. And you, he says that the Word of God is like that seed that comes to the ovum. What's that? That's the egg of faith. That was a gift that was planted. And the life-giving Word of God is planted in the ovum of faith, and it generates new life, and then it grows, and it grows until the day comes when it is born out loud, and it erupts with a confession, a cry of faith, I'm alive in Jesus. That's what Peter is talking about. And who is the mother, St. Augustine says? Who's the mother? The mother is the church where that word is preached, you see. And life comes. Wow. Shorter catechism, we said it this morning. What is effectual calling? It's the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, that moral problem, remember we said there's a moral problem? Enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Remember we said there's an intellectual problem? Here is the remedy. He illumines our minds with His light, the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And now you begin to think God's way. And then He renews our will and persuades us to embrace Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. I love that explanation. And Jesus says in verse 37 and 38, he says, I will make it happen. I will make it happen. I came not to do my will. The Father has a will that those should have eternal life. I will make it happen. And he comes on a mission, and that mission is to go to the cross. And there he makes atonement for your sin and my sin. He pays for us that we might be saved. Our substitute who lived the life we should have lived died the death we deserve to die. And we are united to him by faith. I will get it done. And he says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so this leads to point number three. Are you at the place where you suddenly realize you're coming to Jesus? 
Or have you in the course of your life already, you say, yes, I remember, I have come to Jesus. Have you done that? Has the Father drawn you? I focus on the end of verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What should you do? You who are being called, you're being called. That's why you're here. Yeah, your dad might have made you come, but you're here. Your wife might have forced you to come, but you're here. And the living Word of God has come to you. Do you hear? Look, 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 he says, look. You say, you don't know what a big sinner I am. Come. You don't know the dark things in my heart. Come. You don't know how much I've messed up in my life. Come. Is he drawing you? Come. Look. Look to Jesus. When in the Gospel of John, he says, look to the Son. We think of chapter 3 where he says, just as the serpent in the wilderness was raised up. Do you remember that? The bronze serpent as the snakes were coming in and biting people with poisonous venom and they were dying. Jesus said, or God said to Moses, create a bronze serpent, lift it up, and anyone who looks at the serpent will live. And Jesus says, just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so if any, the Son of Man will be lifted up and whoever looks to the Son and believes in Him will be saved. Look! To him. And he says, I will raise him up. All, all that the Father gave me, I will raise up. The same all of verse 37 is the same all of verse 39. He will persevere with you to the end. If the Father gave you to Jesus, Jesus will not lose you. What can separate you from the love of Christ? What? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Will he change his mind? Will Jesus change his mind about you? Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. What a day it will be. What a great day, that last day. It's coming. Your resurrection is coming. The Bible says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So, what should you do right now? Look. Look to the sun and call others that you know and that you love to look at the sun. Look. Look. Let's pray. Our Father, we believe you have called us, even got us in this, this room this morning. And we are so grateful. We are grateful for the one who chose us in Christ, for God the Father, who planned our salvation, and then who gave us to God the Son who accomplished our salvation in the cross. And then the Holy Spirit applies that salvation, giving us faith to look and believe 
and that Savior who's coming back for us, and nothing can separate us from your love. Oh, Lord, we rise up now to give you praise and thanks, just as we will rise up on the last day. If there's, if there's someone here this morning, and you say, you know, I've just been running away from God, and this, God really used this to make me look to Jesus, then just even now, as we sing this last song, give Him your heart. Surrender yourself to Him. Let that electric, spiritual electricity hug you and assure you that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life for you. Amen.